Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. I'd like to welcome everyone out to another evening, Tuesday evening, for our Exegeting Galatians study. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation The Harvest, Kehilat Tunuva in Thornton, Colorado. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we're excited about being right in the middle of counting the Omer towards the festival of Shavuot. Lord, we are so uh, thrilled that we have had another chance, another year to participate in your holy days, that we have just come out of the festival, the feast of Pesach, of Passover, the season of our deliverance, the season of our being set free in Messiah Yeshua. And Lord, then we turn right into the Chag Hamatzot, the festival of unleavened bread, and then entered into uh, the festival of the first sheaf, the... Um, the um, and now we're counting our way 50 days towards the remembrance, the commemoration of not only the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, but Lord, we recall that according to, to the Jewish reckoning, that this is the anniversary of the giving of the Torah itself, Matan Torah, as, as it is uh, um, described in uh, Hebraic circles. And so Lord, we thank you for the giving of of your Torah. We thank you for the outpouring of your Ruach Kodesh, your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we know that because these festivals are dress rehearsals of messianic redemption, we know that in them that we will see the work of Messiah and that we will continually be reminded of his of his um unique love for us as his people, of his calling us out in order to bring us in. As I like to remind myself in my own uh, commentaries, Passover is the commemoration of being set free by Yeshua, and Shavuot is the commemoration of being filled with the power of Yeshua. And so, Lord, we cannot have Passover without Pentecost, and we dare not recognize Pentecost without first realizing its link to Passover. And so from Pesach to Pentecost, Lord, we are counting the days. And so we thank you. We thank you for your um, mercy and for your grace and for your kindness and for uh, continuing to bring us out. Indeed, as we say in Hebrew, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us concerning the counting of the Omer. 
Lord, uh, continue to bless us as we study the book of Galatians. Continue to raise us up as a community that is ever aware of the equality of Jew and Gentile in the Messiah and who is also prepared to take this good news to those who don't yet know. Lord, give us an opportunity to share our testimony with those around us. Uh, Be with us this week as we continue to go forward in your program, and we will be careful to give you the praise and the glory in all of these things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Well, let's date stamp this recording. This is Tuesday, May the the 3rd. I almost said May the 4th. Um, (laughs) I'll tell you why I'm laughing in a moment. Uh, This is Tuesday, uh, May the 3rd. 2016, and this is a live internet study to the book of Galatians, and um, we meet every Tuesday evening from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. For those of you who are uh, listening to this con, uh, listening to this commentary audio portion by way of iTunes, you've subscribed to the podcast, or you've happened upon one of my websites, uh, and you're listening to this audio commentary, um, I invite you out every Tuesday evening. Join us live. And uh, I'd love to have you come out and join us. We're a small group, um, and we meet via the Internet. Um, The uh, enrollment is free, and there is a live chat with with me, the teacher, uh, what I call a Q&A chat session, um, for the uh, 15 or 20 minutes after the hour that we meet every week. So join us live every week. Uh, Not only do you get the commentary, but you can engage in the uh, um, the Q&A afterwards, and it's a time to um, pick my brain and, uh, you know, what we play, uh, what we can play, what we call uh, Stump the Rabbi, uh, or uh, just um, Q&A where we can uh, uh, bless one another and encourage one another in the Lord, so I do invite you out. By the way, the reason I laughed a moment ago when I, when I almost slipped and said May the 4th is for two reasons. One... Uh, is because I'm actually coming to you live not from the United States, but from South Korea. And so on my side of the world, it's already the 4th. Uh, it's actually um, um, Wednesday uh, uh, morning for me here in Korea. But the uh, classes are recorded and uh, advertised as such that they are on the Tuesday evening. So those of you who are in the live class, I think most of you are in the States. It's probably Tuesday night for you. But the other reason why I laughed when I slipped and said May the 4th <laughs> Is it because I'm actually a Star Wars fan? Yes, I admit it. I'm a Star Wars fan. And uh, May the 4th is a popular Star Wars day, right? As in, may the 4th be with you. May the 4th be with you. Okay, all right, enough of that. Anyway, let's jump into um, some liturgy for tonight, as I am fond of reading. Um, For those of you who are in the live class, you'll see I've got Deuteronomy 6 pulled up. I turned back to our Deuteronomy passage because of its... uh, uh, immediate connection, in my opinion, to the uh, the passage that we're going to be studying out of the New Testament. So, Deuteronomy 6, I'm only going to read the uh, the six verses at the very end, verse 20 through 25. Uh, in the ESV, I'll read that first, and then I'll turn over to the um, Hebrew and read that for you as well. The, he, uh, the, the English reads, quote, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. 
Uh, by the way, this is apropos, being as how we just came out of the Passover, and we still have the uh, the Yitziat Mitzrayim, the deliverance from Egypt, still in mind. So verse 21 there is appropriate, is it not? Verse 22, And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And verse 25 is the kicker. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment for the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Let's turn to the um, the, the Hebrew uh, so we can get a taste of that as well. This will form our liturgy for tonight. Uh, the Hebrew of that same passage, is, uh, those same verses read, Ki ishalcha vincha machar lemur maha idod vahahukim vahamishpatim asher tziva adonai elochinu et chem. In the next verse, vahamarota levincha avadim chayinu le faro bemitraim vyotzi enu adonai mimitraim beyad chazaka. The next verse, verse 22. Vaitain adonai otod umuftim gudolim vraim. B'mitzra'im b'faro uchol b'ito l'einenu. And the next verse, verse 23. V'otanu chutzi misham l'ma'an havi otanu l'tet l'anu et ha'eretz asher nishba la'avotenu. And the next verse, verse 24. V'yitzavenu adonai la'asot et chol chachukim ha'ele ya, I'm sorry, l'yira et adonai Elohenu latov lanu kol chayamim le chayotenu kayom hazeh. And the final verse, verse 25. Utsedakatihye lanu ki nishmor laasot et kol ha mitzvah hazot lifne adonai elohenu kaasheretzi vanu. End. Okay, and as I'm uh, fond of reminding you all, the reason why I read this liturgy is because of the way Moshe describes the commandments as it will be our righteousness in the final pasuk, the final verse there, verse 25. And I'm I'm fond of noticing that the word uh, tzedakah there in this verse is the exact same ver- word in Hebrew, um, tzedakah. It's the exact same word that Moshe uses in Genesis 15.6 where he describes uh, Avraham as being credited by the Lord with righteousness, and he believed in the Lord, and it was credited to his count as righteousness. And we know that the word righteousness in the Genesis patches is referring to what we commonly call in Christian circles positional righteousness, forensic righteousness, in essence, salvation. To be sure, the LXX, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Genesis 15.6, uses dikaiosune for their translation from um, Sedeca into the Greek, which is dikaiosune, which is positional righteousness quite often in the New Testament. And yet, interestingly enough, that the same LXX, the same Greek translators of the Masoretic text, the Hebrew, here in Deuteronomy 6.25, they don't use um, dikaiosune here in their representation of... Um, of uh, Deuteronomy 6.25. They use instead a, a different Greek word. Um, oh, what is it? Off the top of my head. Um, eleemosune, if I'm correct. And ele, Eleemosune is um, 
uh, normally translated in the New Testament as charity, charity, or or um, uh, almsgiving. So essentially, the uh, LXX English translation translates this verse as it will be almsgiving for us. It will be charity for us if we continue to do the commandments of the Lord, which let, keys me into one of the key aspects to righteousness in the Bible, or uh, uh, the, the, this aspect of of um, justification in the Bible, is that it carries uh, two, um, two aspects to it. And we'll talk about that in my commentary tonight, so I don't want to get too far ahead. Let's go ahead and jump over and read the um, the, the uh, New Testament passage that I've selected for my liturgy. Uh, we're going to switch a little bit. We're going to jump over to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 11 through 16 tonight. And uh, the reason we're selecting this passage is because of its immediate relevance to the uh, where we're parked in my commentary, and that is an examination of Galatians 2.16. Uh, ESV, Galatians 2, 11 through, 5, uh, through 16 reads, quote, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For I'm sorry, I've got 11 through 16 pulled up, but I don't actually want to read all of that. I actually just want to read um, verse 14 through 16 um, for us. But This is Paul's. Uh, rebuke of Peter. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And let's pull up the same um, passage in the Greek and read that as well. And starting with verse 14 again, we read, Al hate edan hati uk orthopodusen prostein alethian to euangelio Epon to kepha improsten panton e su judaias I'm sorry yes judaias huparchon ethnikos kaiuk judaikos zespos ta ethne anankadzes judaitsein that's verse 14 let's keep reading verse 15 hemes fuse judaioi kaiuk ex ethnon hamartoloi verse 16, which is the one we're going to study in detail tonight. A dotis de hati u dekaiutai, I'm sorry, anthropos ex ergonamu, in me dia pistios Christu Jesu, kai hemes eis Christon Jesun, epistusimen, hina dekaiothomen ex pistios Christu, kai uk ex ergonamu, Hati ex ergonamu u decautesitai pasa sarx. End. Okay, that will be our liturgy for tonight. And again, linking the two passages, the one out of Deuteronomy and the one here in Galatians, the way I link them together is kind of a Gezerah Shavah, which is the, um, I think it's the second rule of Hillel. Uh, uh, what we call equivalent of expressions, where we have two words in two different passages that remind the uh, the person of 
of each other. They remind, they're reminded of two different passages linked by a common word or phrase in each of the passages. That's what we say, Gezei or Shavah. And um, this particular word, in, in this case, is that word uh, righteousness or um, justification, as, as it's sometimes translated. And so Moshe describes our righteousness or justification in the Deuteronomy passage, and then Paul describes this righteousness or justification in the Deuter- in the uh, Galatians passage. And I often like to challenge my uh, Christian friends and pastors uh, with these two passages side by side and say, tell me, you know, riddle me this, riddle me that type of thing. Is Moshe saying that if we keep the Torah, we'll be saved? Likewise, is Paul saying that if we keep the Torah, we'll be saved? And we kind of play off of that interchange. Okay, let's get uh, started with our study tonight. Uh, I don't need to belabor the point. Those of you who have been following along with me know that we're right in the middle of section topic number four called Works of Law, Part 2, Examining Galatians 2.16. And we began our look into this particular topic in my commentary last week. So I highly recommend that you go back and um, get last week's podcast. Um, Go to my website at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E, Torah.com. And right on the homepage, there's a link to the Galatians commentary. Click on that. And then just scroll down through the page and you'll find the relevant information pertaining not only to the Tuesday night studies, but to the entire um, 180 or 180-something page written commentary, as well as scroll down to the bottom of the page. Uh, when, when you click on the live class info, if you scroll to the bottom of the page, you'll see the information related to the audio commentaries that I'm recording each night. So... Um, let's pick up the reading again and see if we can get down a little farther into this portion. Uh, we're on the we're about in the middle of page 33. If you're actually looking at the written version this time, for those of you who are in the class, I've just got it pulled up for you to join me. Um, we left off last week with the paragraph that ended in the phrase uh, "merit theology." So let's pick up the reading now with the new paragraph. For purposes of comparison. Um, Let's examine traditional Christian perspectives as well as recent Pauline interpretations of Galatians 2.16. Martin Luther himself has an excellent commentary to Galatians available for free if one does an internet search for it. And I say that while I agree with the general theological aspects of his commentary to Galatians 2.16, viz. good works will not justify, only faith justifies, I nevertheless disagree with the specific historical and sociological background that he implies Israel held to. So, uh, top of page 34, let's read this quote from Galatians, uh, from, uh, from Luther's commentary to Galatians. Quote, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. End quote. Luther starts with the quote uh, from the verse that we're examining as well. For the sake of argument, this is Luther speaking, for the sake of argument, let us suppose that you could fulfill the law in the spirit of the first commandment of God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. It would do you no good. A person simply is not justified by the works of the law. Luther goes on to state, The works of the law, according to Paul, include the whole law, judicial, ceremonial, moral. Now, if the performance of the moral law cannot justify... How can circumcision justify when circumcision is part of the ceremonial law? 
Luther goes on to conclude, the demands of the law may be fulfilled before and after justification. There were many excellent men among the pagans of old, men who never heard of justification. They lived moral lives, but that fact did not justify them. Peter, Paul, all Christians live up to the law, but that fact does not justify them. For I know nothing by myself, says Paul, yet am I not hereby justified. And that is a reference to 1 Corinthians 4, 4, end quote. So that's uh, Luther's commentary. And you can see from my footnote that um, I just pulled that right offline. Anyone can uh, access Luther's commentaries these days if you have internet access. Let's keep reading my own commentary. I do not believe that first century Israel was hoping to enter into covenant that is be justified with God via Torah obedience, viz. the works of the law. A cursory reading of the various daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly, and sometimes longer, loyalty to the commandments as outlined by Moshe on Hashem's behalf do not indicate that God was expecting perfunctory, let alone perfect, performance of commandments for the sake of justification from him. Let me briefly interject here. Um, it's not uncommon to hear standard Christian exegesis explain that 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 one of the original ways to be saved was that God expected the people of, of the Old Testament to perfectly keep the law, and therefore if they kept it perfectly, they would be saved. But now that Christ has come, they go on to explain, we no longer have to try and keep the Torah, we simply need to avail ourselves of the faith of Christ. So that's why I mentioned that in my commentary there. But I also believe that that if one were to actually just go back and read the Torah, uh, read Genesis through Deuteronomy with the idea that you're looking for this this supposed simplistic grocery list that a person could do, you know, start from start to finish and kind of chart his progress so that he was able to come to some sort of conclusion after he read the Torah and actually implemented it in his life. I think you'll find that such a, a, a simplistic reading of of Genesis to Deuteronomy is is unwarranted. And so uh, I, I think it's, it does a, a disservice to God's law to, um, to cast it in that light. Let's keep reading my own commentary. Torah itself simply does not lend to this simplistic l interpretation, the one I'm, I'm describing here. Quite frankly, Luther's rhetoric seems more likely to strongly echo his own quibble against the papacy of his day than to accurately describe Paul's intentions. In fact, if you go back and read uh, the remaining uh, um, paragraphs in in the, the the quote from Luther that I lifted there, you'll see that he he turns immediately towards uh, um, trying to dismantle the uh, theology of the papacy. There, Matthew Henry's ubiquitous, concise commentary in this passage is, in my experience, representative of mainstream Christian views. Um, nearly anyone who's done any mild amount of research into biblical commentaries is familiar with Matthew Henry's commentary. So let's quote Matthew Henry. Quote, Paul, having thus shown he was not inferior to any apostle, nor to Peter himself, speaks of the great foundation doctrine of the gospel. For what did we believe in Christ? Was it not that we might be justified by the faith of Christ? If so, is it not foolish to go back to the law and to expect to be justified by the merit of moral works, or sacrifices, or ceremonies? The occasion of this declaration doubtless arose from the ceremonial law, but the argument is quite as strong against all dependence upon the works of the moral law 
as, re, uh, as respects justification. Uh, Henry continues, To give the greater weight to this, it is added, but if while we... But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ the minister of sin? This would be very dishonorable to Christ, and also very hurtful to them, speaking of those sinners. But considering the law itself, he saw that justification was not to be expected by the works of it, and that there was now no further need of the sacrifices and the cleansings of it, since they were done away with in Christ." by his offering up himself a sacrifice for us. He did not hope of fear, hope or fear of anything from it any more than a dead man from enemies. But the effect was not a careless, lawless life. Uh, Henry continues, It was necessary that he might live to God and be devoted to him through the motives and grace of the gospel. It is no new prejudice though a most unjust one, that the doctrine of justification by faith alone tends to encourage people to sin. Not so, for to take occasion from free grace, or the doctrine of it, to live in sin is to try to make Christ the minister of sin, at any thought of which all Christian hearts would shudder. End quote. That's Matthew Henry's commentary to Galatians 2, Actually, that's, that covers verses 15 through 19. And if you look at my footnote in my commentary, uh, you'll see that I pulled this one from the uh, BibleHub.com commentary section uh, for Matthew Henry. Let me keep reading my own commentary. Continuing our look at Galatians 2.16, I want to shift now from general Christian views to perhaps some popular Messianic Jewish views. And as I interject, the reason I make this shift is because many of you following my commentaries are from a traditional Christian background, and I want to start. I wanted to start with uh, popular and well-meaning Christian views first before I moved into the the um, otherwise for some unfamiliar Messianic perspectives. And uh, this will be interesting because um, the Messianic Jewish perspectives you would think would be more in agreement with the way I read Paul, but as we're going to find out here pretty soon, some of the more popular Messianic uh, view Jewish authors are still surprisingly more closely aligned with the traditional uh, Reformation views on Paul. So, uh, reading my commentary, I write, I want to use most extensively some material from a Messianic Jewish commentary on the book of Galatians written by David Stern, translator of the complete Jewish Bible. In my opinion, Stern still writes from a decidedly, quote, Lutheran, end quote, perspective with regards to the legalism of the first century. Stern seems to describe works of the law in terms of merit theology with its attendant, quote, perversion of Torah into set of stiff rules and focus on the minutia of commandments, end quote. I actually believe that Stern was working from a time prior to the discovery of 4QMMT, and perhaps that is why, even though his overall purpose as a Messianic Jew is to exonerate Torah, in the end, his interpretation of works of the law sadly misses the mark quite a bit. Um, by the way, what I mean by working prior to the discovery of 4QMMT is that uh, 4QMMT, the document that is um, linked to the Dead Sea Scrolls, is actually a document that was probably written sometime around the uh, first century or before. Uh, uh, it was actually discovered in the late 
or early fifties, late fifties, and then it was it began the the tedious work of translation because of its fragmental fragmented nature. It took a long time to translate, and indeed, it's only really just come to semi-conclusion or maybe uh, near conclusion in the uh, late 90s or even 2000s. And if I'm correct, I think Stern wrote his commentary earlier than that, so that's why I mentioned what I said. Um, Nevertheless, uh, despite what I said about Stern there, I want to put his views on the table due to his important contributions to the Messianic Jewish movement as a whole. Um, I actually have his uh, complete Jewish Bible, and I have his Jewish New Testament commentary. I'm looking at them both on my bookshelf right here. And I think Stern uh, overall makes a valuable and invaluable contribution to the Messianic movement as a whole. If I if I had the funds, I would actually put a complete Jewish Bible, as well as the, the, the Jewish New Testament commentary, I'd actually put both of them into the hands of every Christian pastor that I that I know. So, I'm going to launch from his comments, at times within his comments, into my own bracketed wording, where I, where I try to kind of further clarify his position. Let's keep reading my commentary. I want to launch from chapter 2, verse 15, to explain the crucial verse 16, quote, we to nature Judeans and not out of nations sinners. That's a literal rendering of verse 15 from the Greek, so to say. I do not think that these are Paul's thoughts, even though Paul wrote these words. Shaul is not degrading Gentiles in any way when he calls them sinners. I think he's simply using the same language and identifiers that the legalizers slash Judaizers slash influencers slash agitators, in other words, the villains of the book, I think he's using the same language that they use in order to speak of the Gentiles, in order to shock Peter into some sensibility. And uh, we'll 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 get a, a fuller treatment of this of these two verses when we get, actually get down to the excursus portion of this commentary. But um, also, the Torah itself recognized that before the giving of the Messiah and the revelation of the Torah, Gentiles were actually sinners. That's the uh, the designation that the Torah uses. You can reference um, Galatians two eleven through twelve and compare this to say Luke eighteen thirty one through thirty three with Luke twenty four seven. As I keep, uh, as I state, as I continue. However, it should be noted that he also, speaking of Peter and Paul, he also went out of his way to emphasize the equality of Jews and Gentiles before Hashem. All right, let's read now this quote from David Stern um, and see what we can make of works of the law from Stern. Here's Dr. Stern's thoughts. Quote, Having known, but that is not being justified man out of works of law, if ever not through faith of Messiah Yeshua, also we into Messiah Yeshua, we believed in order that we might be justified out of faith of Messiah and not out of works of law, because out of works of law, not will be justified every flesh. And I inserted this little quote here, this little note. Um, this is a literal rendering of verse 16 from the Greek. Being declared righteous by Hashem is the goal of all men who seek Hashem. Righteousness, of course, can be defined in two ways. And then we pick up Stern's quote again. We have behavioral righteousness, which is actually doing what is right. And then forensic righteousness, which is being regarded as righteousness in the sense that A, this is Stern's thoughts, that God has declared him of guilt for past sins, and B, that God has given him a new human nature, inclined to obey Hashem rather than rebel against him as before. End quote. Uh, as I interject briefly, 
This is why I quoted the uh, Deuteronomy passage in concert with the Galatians passage. Let's keep reading Stern. Quote, Yeshua has made forensic righteousness available to everyone by paying on everyone's behalf the penalty for sins which Hashem's justice demands, which is death. Top of page 36. Forensic righteousness is appropriated by an individual for himself the moment he unreservedly puts his trust in Hashem, which at this point in history entails also trusting in Yeshua the Messiah upon learning of him and understanding what he has done. Stern continues, The task of, behem- of becoming behaviorally righteous begins with appropriating forensic righteousness through Yeshua. It occupies the rest of a believer's life, being completed only at the moment of his own death, when he goes to be with Yeshua. What is important to keep in mind here is the difference between these two kinds of righteousness. Each time the Greek word dikaio, righteousness, or a cognate is encountered, it must be decided which of these two meanings of the word is meant. In the present verse and the next, speaking of Galatians 2.15, by the way, all four instances of dikaio refer to forensic righteousness, but in verse 21, the related work Dikaiosune, the, uh, the related word dikaiosune refers to behavioral righteousness. Um, and um, give me a moment, I need to look at my footnote. 24, 25, 26, okay. Yes, um, <clears throat> this is David Stern's thoughts still. Uh, I'll have to look at that footnote there a little later on offline. But notice how David Stern is um, basically describing the same thing that I've been highlighting and by using the uh, the Deuteronomy passage with the uh, Galatians passage. And that is that uh, righteousness has these two aspects to it and things like that. Let's continue reading Stern. Works of law translates the Greek phrase ergonomos. Um, and I have to disagree. I think it's actually ergonomu. But nevertheless, Stern says ergonomos. Since the word namas means law, it is usually referring from the Septuagint to the Mosaic law, i.e. Torah. Most Christians usually understand, quote, works of law, end quote, to mean, quote, actions done in obedience to the Torah, end quote. This is Stern's thoughts as we continue. But this is wrong. One of the best kept secrets about the New Testament is that when Shaul writes namas, he frequently does not mean divine law, but a man-made system of law. This phrase, Stern uh, goes on to state, Ergon Namas, scripturally found only in Shaul's writings, occurs eight times, and always in technical discussions of the Torah. And then Stern goes on to list those uh, references uh, in Galatians and in Romans. Two other uses of Ergon works are closely associated with the word Namas, law, in Romans 3.27 and in Romans 9.32. Even when he uses Aragon by itself, Stern goes on to say, the implied meaning is frequently, quote, a man-made system of law-related works, end quote. And he uh, invites you to reference Galatians 5.19, Romans 4.2 and 6, as well as Romans 9.11, Romans 11.6, and then look at Ephesians 2.9, 2 Timothy 1.9, Titus 3.5 as well. Let's continue with Stern. There are 17 other instances when it is neutral, speaking of works. In order to interpret Shaul correctly, one needs to understand that the phrase ergon namas does not mean deeds done in virtue of following the Torah the way Hashem intended, 
but deeds done in consequence of perverting the Torah into a set of rules which it is presumed can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for Hashem or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. End quote. So, that's our quote from Stern, and if you'll notice, Stern decidedly casts works of the law into a, a framework of legalism, so that the Judaisms of Paul's day are seen as misusing God's law from the perspective of trying to keep it in order to be saved. So, that's why we bring Stern's commentary into uh, examination. Now let's keep reading my own commentary. I disagree with Stern's working interpretation of works of the law. Don't get me wrong. I agree with the theology behind what he's saying, which is works righteousness viz legalism will never save anyone, and a legalistic misuse of Torah is obviously displeasing to the God who gave the Torah. What I, what I say is that I simply disagree with the historic plausibility of Stern's interpretation of the phrase works of the law. To be sure, in the case of the Galatian congregation, I personally maintain that the specific social issue that drove Paul to write the letter was the, quote, different gospel, end quote, the gospel that was, quote, contrary to the one Paul preached, end quote. And you can look at my footnote there where I'm referencing Galatians 1, 6-9. This, this contrary gospel, this other gospel, this different gospel, sought to transform Gentiles into Jews via a man-made, a man-made ceremony of conversion performed under the guise of, quote, covenant inclusion, end quote. So I don't, as Stern seems to infer, believe that Paul set out to explain the differences between spirit-led Torah obedience and legalistic perversion of Torah commands. And in fact, that's a direct quote from Stern himself. That's how he call, That's how he describes works of law, legalistic perversion of Torah commands. I continue, in my own commentary, to appreciate the consternation that this halacha caused Shaul, one has to understand that within the first century Judaisms, the prevailing view was that, quote, all Israel have a place in the world to come, end quote, a maxim based on a popular rabbinic interpretation of the key phrase, quote, your people are all righteous, end quote. That comes out of Isaiah 60.21. Um, is how we would read it in Hebrew. All your people are righteous. And this is explained in Mishnah at Tractate Sanhedrin 10.1. So, um, you guys following along with me so far? So we've got different viewpoints on what works of the law is uh, means in Paul. And um, that's where I'm kind of going in my commentary. Let's keep reading my commentary. What is more... From the perspective of the ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism of the first century, since Israel and Israel alone were granted this gift from Hashem, this gift of Torah, it was necessary in the minds of the proto-rabbis to convert Gentiles into Jews before they could enjoy the status of full-fledged covenant member. Thus, thus Israel is a Jewish-only set and the Torah is for Jews only. So I go on to um, state that in order to accomplish this task... Um, in other words, to turn Gentiles into Jews, a ceremony had been invented, a ceremony not found in the Torah itself, which is part of the problem, right? The ceremony included circumcision for the males. Because of this feature, because of the circumcision feature, the entire sociological situation was subsumed 
under the label, quote, circumcision, end quote. Thus, works of law in Paul becomes a sort of shorthand way, in my opinion, for Shaul to describe the proselyte prerequisite for non-Jews, which primarily included circumcision, but eventually went on to include Sabbath, food laws, and other purity issues imposed on covenant members wishing to maintain a status of, quote, righteous, end quote, in the commonwealth of Israel. I continue to state, and given these unique insights into the minds of the early Judaisms, we see why it is necessary to avoid simply labeling any form of Torah obedience, whether from the 1st century or from the 21st century that we have today, as legalism, viz. merit theology, the way I perceive Stern seems to be characterizing the phrase works of the law. You guys following along with me so far? So, um, let's keep reading my commentary and see if this makes some sense. Uh, I, I sincerely hope that this is a bit challenging to those of you who might be listening to this commentary from the traditional Christian perspective. Let's keep reading my commentary. Having just examined Stern's view of Galatians 2.16, let us take a look at Dunn's specific notes to this verse as well. This is um, James D.G. Dunn, otherwise known as Jimmy Dunn, to his uh, close friends. Here's Dunn, quote, As to the immediate context, the most relevant factor is that Galatians 2.16 follows immediately upon the debates, indeed the crisis, at Jerusalem and at Antioch, which focused on two issues, at Jerusalem, circumcision, and at Antioch, the Jewish food laws with the whole question of ritual purity unstated but clearly implied. So those are the two issues that uh, Dunn states that works of law is within the context. Dunn continues, Paul's forceful denial of justification by works of law in his response to these two issues, I'm sorry, Paul's forceful denial of justification by law is his response to these two issues. His denial that justification is from works of law, Dunn goes on to say, is more precisely a denial that justification depends on circumcision or on observation of the Jewish purity and food taboos. We may justifiably deduce, therefore, that by works of law, Paul intended his readers to think of particular observances of the law, like circumcision and the food laws. His Galatian readership might well think also of the other area of law observance to which Paul refers disapprovingly later in the same letter, their observance of special days and feasts, which we're going to read about later on in Galatians 4.10. Dunn continues, or Dunn actually uh, concludes, but these, I'm sorry, Dunn continues, but why these particular works of the law? The broader contest suggests a reason. We're on the top of page 38. Let's continue reading Dunn. From the broader context provided for us by Greco-Roman literature of the period, we know that just these observances were widely, rec uh, widely regarded as characteristically and distinctly Jewish. Writers like Petronius, Plutarch, Tat uh, Tacitus, and Juvenal took it for granted that, in particular, circumcision, abstention from pork, and the Sabbath were observances which marked out the practitioners as Jews or as people who were very attracted to Jewish ways. These, of course, were not all exclusively Jewish practices. For example, not only Jews practiced circumcision. But this 
Dunn continues, this, it all makes the more striking that these practices were nevertheless widely regarded as both characteristic and distinctive of the Jews as a race, a fact which tells us more about the influence of Diaspora Judaism in the Greco-Roman world. Dunn goes on to conclude, it is clear, in other words, that just these observances in particular functioned as identity markers. They served to identify their practitioners as Jewish in the eyes of the wider public. They were the particular, I'm sorry, they were the peculiar rights which marked out the Jews as that peculiar people, end quote. The uh, footnote to number 29 shows that I lifted this from Dunn's work, The, uh, the New Perspective on Paul, uh, from section 2. Uh, by the way, if you just do a Google search for that um, uh, work, The New Perspective on Paul, uh, I think a good amount of it is available online uh, since he originally published it to a, uh, uh, a particular Christian forum, a, a particular Christian, a well-known Christian, um, I think it's kind of a newsletter at the time. Let's keep reading my own commentary. I believe that if Paul meant to specifically single out a short list of Torah commands that uniquely marked out covenant membership for these Galatian Gentiles seeking legitimate acceptance into Israel, at least from the perspective of influencers pressing the issue, then, quote, works of the law, end quote, likely does, in fact, refer specifically to circumcision and the food laws like Dunn suggests. You guys understand where I'm getting my, uh, my suggestion there? Within the immediate context of Paul's use of works of law, which which kind of shows up suddenly in Galatians two sixteen, and then no less than three times in one verse, it's within the context of Paul's disagreement over Peter's distancing himself from the Gentile believers, and within the context of a um, a uh, a possible disagreement over table fellowship. That's why I mean by the works of law being. Um, couched within the immediate context of the circumcision and the food laws. Let's keep reading my own commentary. However, I also believe, given that Paul goes on to use works of the law in Romans as well as here in Galatians, perhaps we might suggest that works of the law could be understood as describing a kind of sectarian halakha that served to separate any given group from another group in terms of right living before God Almighty. In other words, when comparing Jews to Gentiles, works of the law served to separate the two groups on the basis of on the basis on on the basis of circumcision and on the food laws. However, when comparing circumcised with other circumcised Jews, the Judean versions of works of the law might not particularly be the same as the Qumran version of works of law and vice versa. You guys understand what I'm saying there? Works of law can be just a kind of a generic term used in the first century to just separate groups from groups, whether they be Jews from Gentiles, or whether they be Jews from other Jews, etc. Let's keep reading my commentary. Of course, for Shaul, no matter which community he would find himself visiting, either way, he's certainly going to argue for entrance into the lasting people of God via faith in Yeshua, as opposed to the works of the law, and maintenance of membership via walking by the Spirit, and that's per Galatians 5, 16, 18, and 25, in opposition to the works of law, end quote. Um, I think it's becoming apparent 
that works of law as we continue to study it from a um, more historical uh, perspective, a more historical, historically tenable perspective, that contextually Paul is really trying to single out some type of um, sectarian um, sectarian uh, policies that existed in his day, a, a policy that was uh, damaging to the expansion of Israel among the Gentile people groups. Let's keep reading my commentary. We're actually making a lot of progress tonight. Lastly, let us see how Tim Haig understands Galatians 2.16. Backing up to Galatians 2.15 to get a context, Haig notes, quote, Thus, when Paul writes, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, end quote, he is deliberately using the language of those who are distancing themselves from the Gentiles and encouraging the Gentiles to become proselytes in order to leave the status of sinner and enter the circle of the Jews by birth. End quote. Haig goes on, to con- uh, uh, goes on to say, this being the case, verse 15 is a continuation of the dialogue slash rhetoric of verse 14. We might paraphrase the two, verse- paraphrase the two verses this way. And what we're going to read now is basically a, uh, a paraphrased quote from Galatians 2, 14 and 15. This, this will be interesting. Listen to this. This is Tim Haig. Quote, If you, being a Jew, participate with Gentiles, even though the community halakha you have is against doing so, then why do you compel the Gentiles to follow your halakha when you're not even willing to be consistent? Don't you hear the argument of your chavarim ringing in your ears? We're Jews, not Gentile sinners, end quote. Okay, that's Haig. Let's continue reading Tim Haig's quote here. This is not the last time we will find Paul quoting the stock cliches of the influencers. And it will be important for us to keep our eyes open for this kind of rhetorical device as we follow Paul's arguments. Haig continues, thus verse 16 begins Paul's direct answer to the question that he had presented to Peter in verses 14 and 15. And what is his answer? That final and ultimate covenant membership is gained through faith in Messiah, not through any ritual of conversion for Gentiles, or even by maintaining one's covenant status through, through doing the mitzvot. For though Jews enter the covenant on a physical basis through lineage to Abraham, yet in terms of the spiritual blessings of the covenant, these come only to those who have the faith of Abraham. They do not come as a result of merely being physical, uh, physically related to the covenant. End quote. The footnote, uh, footnote to Tim Haig shows that I lifted this from his indispensable commentary to the study of Galatians, uh, which is available at his, res- at his uh, website at torresource.com. Let's keep reading my commentary. Haig's own interpretation of works of law is provided for his commentary to Galatians as the following. And then this last paragraph is actually um, Haig's uh, definition, so to say, of works of the law. This is Tim Haig. Quote, The fact that both the phrases works of the Torah and counted as righteousness, end quote, are found in this document, speaking of the um, 4QMMT document, uh, is incredibly important for understanding the same phrases in Paul. What we now understand is that the phrase, quote, works of the law slash Torah, end quote, was used in Paul's day to refer specific, uh, refer to specific sets of rules or halakha, which a group required for its self-definition. Simply put, such a list of works of the Torah constituted the 
entrance requirements into the group. Since the group would no doubt consider its own interpretations of the written Torah to be the correct interpretation, they would also have held that only those who adhere to their halakha would be actually obeying the Torah and living righteously. Works of the Torah, end quote, then refer to halakha required for entrance into the covenant community as envisioned by each sect, not personal obedience to God's word. Hegg goes on to conclude, and since covenant membership was considered one and the same with the status of righteous, it is not difficult to understand how adhering to a given halakha to gain membership into the community was attached to being reckoned as righteous, end quote. And uh, I lifted that uh, definition from the same commentary. So, essentially, before I jump back into my own commentary, I, I think what Haig is trying to challenge us with is that um, careful scholarly research into this phrase, works of law, does not easily lend itself to a, to a generic definition that describes meritorious works in general, although the principle behind uh, describing it that way is still valid if we're trying to discourage anyone from trying to work their way into heaven, per, per se, with by doing good works. We, we can still use that as a sermon uh, when we're trying to teach people um, the dangers of legalistically using some type of simplistic ladder to get into heaven. But when it comes to um, critical studies on Paul and the practical application for today's Messianic communities, particularly in regards to... Um, the ongoing relevance of Torah in the life of believers, we're going to have to go back to a better reading of Paul in order to uh, begin to embark on a better uh, understanding of the context of the words that we find in Paul. Let's keep reading my own commentary. I think it's fairly self-explanatory. We're near the bottom of page 39. I tend to think Dunn and Haig combined, in contrast to the popular Christian views, offer the most accurate interpretation of Galatians 2.15 and 16, and works of the law by describing for us the important socio-religious background necessary to appreciate the unique consternation that Jewish-only works of the law policies were causing our apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, interpreted in this manner, we as believers seeking justification and sanctification found exclusively in Yeshua need only to begin to distance ourselves from a limited use and application of the Torah as some sort of entry list for Gentiles seeking legitimacy in the covenant and communities of Israel, as well as distance ourselves away from any supposed reliance on maintenance, maintaining our place in God's people by relying on works of the law as Jews and basically former Gentiles. You guys following along with me there? Uh, works of the law is likely this uh, sectarian view of Torah, or what, or what I would describe as a, the Torah as, as applicable for Jews only. Let's keep reading my own commentary, because I'm actually going to finish out this section tonight. Uh, bottom, uh, top of page 40. The negative impact, impact that the prevailing Christian hermeneutic that interprets Paul as forbidding any sort of Torah obedience, whether with right motives or not, has for today's emerging Torah communities, is devastating. To wit, we Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles indeed seek to become more obedient to God's holy scriptures as we continue to grow and consequently answer the Holy Spirit's tug in our hearts to return to covenant faithfulness. 
Imagine our shock and confusion when our Christian friends and family members who don't embrace a Torah-based lifestyle label our Torah obedience as mere legalism. Here's a, a set of quotes that we Torah-obedient Jews and Gentiles often hear from our otherwise well-meaning Christian friends and family members who don't have the same perspective on Torah that we do. These, this, is, this is what we are uh, used to hearing. Quote, you guys are going back under the law, end quote. You've heard that one before? How about this one? Quote, you guys are returning to legalism, end quote. Here's another one. Quote, you guys are trying to earn your position in God's eyes, end quote. These are some of the sentiments we Torah-keeping Jews and Gentiles hear from our mainstream Christian counterparts. In my experience as a Torah-keeping Jewish man that embraces Yeshua, part of the Christian confusion in my opinion, can be cleared up by understanding that Shaul's works of the law doesn't describe mere legalistic commandment keeping, but instead captures the sociological notion of Torah keeping for the sake of maintaining covenant membership, a sort of social badge, boundary marker, or ostensible Jewish responsibility to uphold Torah because we are in a covenant partnership with Hashem perspective. Did you get that? That's kind of a mouthful. I think I'll go back and revisit that in a moment. Uh, the last sentence I state, and in the eyes of the early Judaisms, this quote-unquote partnership started, this partnership with God, started with legally recognized ethnic Jewish identity, a view the current Torah movement and the mainstream Christian church should rightly repudiate. Okay. That is basically the end of section 4, the topical section entitled Works of the Law, Part 2, examining Galatians 2.16. Next week, we will be poised to turn to topical section number 5, which, if I'm correct, is entitled Covenantal Nomism and Justification, or something to that effect. And so we're going to basically start moving away from works of the law and start looking at this whole package of the first century Israel which is entitled Covenantal Nomism. What does that fancy phrase mean? But in closing to this week's uh, section, um, I just want to emphasize um, particularly that I think it is a very valuable insight worth contemplating, at least from the traditional Christian perspective, that we, we current Torah-keeping Jewish and Gentile believers in Messiah even though we we believe that works of a law doesn't re, doesn't doesn't particularly um, describe merit theology, and even though it's more likely as we uh, begin to uncover more and more um, documents and research into the background behind Paul's writings, even though it's more likely that works of law refers to um, this the sectarian view of Torah, this this extremely um, limited perspective of the Torah as seen through the eyes of a Jewish-only Israel, even though that's the way we we are probably better off reading Paul, it's still highly important, and I, I can't stress this fact enough, it is highly important that we, both Jews and Gentiles and Messiah, stress the fact that that view of the Torah, or that, that definition of works of law, is also in error. So, whether we describe works of the law as 
merit theology, legalism, or works of the law as a sectarian view of Torah, they're all bad theology, people. They're all bad theology. And that's why Paul is going to be sent by Yeshua himself to correct the uh, the errant theology that was running rampant in the first century Judaisms of his day. And uh, I think that's going to go a long way towards uh, helping to repair the rift that exists between uh, Messianic Jews and um, traditional Christians today. Because, let's be honest, many traditional uh, Christians today are quite leery of returning to anything that smacks of Jewish observance of Torah commands. Um, in my uh, personal experience, as I uh, draw my uh, study to a close tonight, in my personal experience of um, dialoguing and meeting and fellowshipping and praying with and loving on uh, Christians from all backgrounds, um, I was actually raised as a Baptist, not as a Jew. I was actually raised not as a Messianic Jew with with a knowledge of my Jewish heritage. I was actually raised as a as a um, independent fundamental Baptist. So I I knew about Jesus before I knew about Judaism. The point I'm trying to make. But in my experience of of interacting with with well-meaning Christians on this topic of Torah obedience and such, I find that many Christians are shy of um, of embracing Torah for two primary reasons. There are two pillars of theology as, as or pillars of conviction that kind of um, prevent uh, traditional Christians from embracing what I would call the, the Torah of Moshe from a practical perspective. And that would mean taking on the Seventh-day Sabbath, the dietary issues, um, keeping the festivals, and of course circumcision for their children. And, and the two pillars that I have encountered, that I describe, are one a pillar that's described or identified as Jewish ethnicity. In other words, if you ask many Christians why they don't keep, say, Seventh-day Sabbath or don't keep kosher, they'll often tell you, well, that was for Jews, that's for the Jews only, that was for Israel, that was given to the Jews only, and because I'm not a Jew, it doesn't apply to me. And this causes uh, these Christians to read through the Old Testament, and whenever they encounter the word Israel, such as in the Shema, here, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be in your love, Lord, love, Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be upon your heart, etc., etc. Whenever they read Israel in those passages in the Old Testament, they simply interpret the word Israel there as Jewish Israel. And because they don't believe that they belong to Jewish Israel, they believe they belong to the church, i.e., Israel and the church are two separate entities, then the Torah being for Jews only does not apply to them as a non-Jew. That's the first pillar. The second pillar that I encounter in my interaction with Christians is the pillar known as fulfillment or something to that effect. In, in other words, when I ask them why they don't keep Seventh-day Sabbath, kosher, etc., etc., then they will respond something to the effect of, Christ did away with the law, Christ fulfilled the law, Christ nailed it to the cross, uh, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, um, uh, we're not to be judged in regards to uh, Sabbath, New Moons, festivals, those are shadows. Uh, and so th th all of those answers I have labeled under the pillar of fulfillment or the, the, the pillar of done away with in Christ, or something to that effect. So, as you, you can see from my perspective, as I sit back and examine these two pillars of conviction within Christian theology today, the pillar of, of Jewish-only Torah on one side, and the pillar of 
Jesus fulfilled the law on the other side, you can see that these two pillars are extremely strong areas of conviction within the minds and hearts of, of many well-meaning Christians. And you can understand why it becomes extremely difficult for people in my position, people with a pro-Torah stance, people with a positive Torah outlook of the scriptures, people who believe that the Torah was not for Jews only, people who believe that Jesus' fulfillment of the law in Matthew 5, 17-21 does not mean that, uh, fulfillment does not mean that uh, the law is done away with. People who don't interpret uh, works of law and under the law the, the, as um, uh, meaning um, simple uh, obedience to the law. You can see how I've got my work cut out for me, so to say, as I as I'm invited to Christian churches and, and dialogue with pastors on these particular topics. And and why why shouldn't my work be cut out for me? Why not? Why why isn't it hard work? It is hard work because I desire, and I'll close with this, I desire to see sincere believers on both sides of the argument. I desire to see both groups come together in a more strengthened unity under the banner of Yeshua. We don't need to strengthen our unity under the banner of Torah, per se. What we need to do is strengthen our unity under the banner of Messiah, because indeed, only in Messiah is our truest and most genuine identity going to be found. Understand what I'm saying? We keep Torah, but that is not our truest identity in God. Our truest identity in God is who we are in Messiah. The righteousness of God in Messiah, as Paul describes it. We have been set free by the blood of Messiah. And therefore, we are truly God's sons. We are truly sons of Abraham. This is our true identity in Messiah. This is our our sure foundation in God. And it, it is the banner by which both Jew and Gentile can rally under. We can rally our cry under this banner. Why? Because under this banner... The lines of demarcation between Jew and Gentile, between slave and free, between male and female, those all disappear as our true positional righteousness in God rises to the surface and rises to the top and indeed becomes the um, the light that everyone can see. This doesn't mean that I abandon my identity as a Jew or if you're a Gentile tonight listening to this commentary, don't stop trying to be a Gentile. You're a Gentile in Messiah. I'm a Jew in Messiah. This doesn't mean that you stop being a male in Messiah or stop being a female in Messiah or, in Paul's day, slave and free. Those those distinctions don't instantly disappear. Those social um, uh, positions don't instantly disappear once you take on the mind of Messiah, once you put on Christ, once you become a Christian, once you become a believer. The point I'm simply trying to make is that in Messiah, we find equality. And therefore, uh, to quote uh, another popular phrase in Paul, we become the commonwealth of Israel. We become uh, the one new man that, that is described in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, uh, this is the identity that we need to showcase to the world. This is the identity that will tear down the um, the uh, the animosity that exists between the two people groups. This, I believe, is the identity that will be a stronger witness to unsaved Israel. Amen? What kind of witness do we give Israel when we tell them as Christians that the law has been done away with? I think it sends a poor uh, witness to Israel, uh, particularly when they can read the, the Old Testament and see that God has n not even hinted 
at um, doing away with Torah in the Old Testament, and yet the Christian church comes along and says that via Paul, the, the, the Torah is uprooted and done away with. Uh, it's, it's a sad legacy that the, that the historic Gentile Christian church broke away from their Jewish uh, counterparts in the first century in order to establish a competing um, uh, group known as Christianity. I believe it's God's desire that uh, Christianity and the, the Messianic groups that we find today return to a more unified uh, people group, uh, come back together like we were in the first century, and begin to worship God, follow His Torah, and exalt His Messiah. And all of this by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh. Amen. Amen. So, let's close in prayer. And then for those of you who are in the live class, uh, we'll keep the chat room open for about another 15 minutes so that we can entertain questions and comments, okay? Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. And Lord, I sincerely thank you for the opportunity to sit and to study and to teach. Lord, I ask that you will continue to raise me up as a voice in this generation, a voice not only to Christians, but also to Jews. For indeed, Paul's approach was to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Lord, as a Jewish man who knows Yeshua, my heart yearns to see unsaved Jews come to a genuine knowledge of your Messiah, Yeshua, of their Messiah, Yeshua. And yet, Lord, for the last uh, 2,000 years or so, the, the, the message that Jesus is the Messiah and that he came to, to restore our relationship to the Father and to empower us to walk into the Father's commandments. Lord, this message has been muddied. It's been, it's been confusing at best to the traditional uh, unsaved Jew who, who can't understand how the Jewish Messiah would lead a Jewish person away from the scriptures of Israel. Lord, may it not be so. Let us uh, now begin to um, teach a more accurate message that Jesus doesn't lead a Jewish person away from the Torah, but in fact, Jesus empowers a Jewish person to keep the Torah as accurately uh, recognized from God's perspective. So Lord, give us the opportunity to witness. Give us the opportunity to, to recognize that uh, uh, you still love the Jewish people and that you still hold out your hands all day to a, 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 for a disobedient people to recognize their Messiah and to fall on his mercy and grace. Give us the opportunity to share uh, this um, gospel message with whomever we meet. Lord, be with us this week as we continue to study Galatians, raise us up as teachers, uh, voices in this dark and evil generation, protect us from the adversary, help us to wear the armor of Ephesians chapter 6 so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil and so that having done all to stand, we can stand in the strength of Messiah. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory in all of these things. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God, 
with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.